With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. There's not much time. You got to be miles away from here for dawn. Where is she? Follow that north star. If there are no stars, just follow the river. Listen for them. Fear is your enemy. Whoa. Easy now. I'm gonna be free or die. Opening November 1st, Harriet tells the extraordinary story of Harriet Tubman's escape from slavery and heroic fight to free hundreds of slaves. Director Casey Lemons turned to Terence Blanchard, the six-time Grammy Award-winning trumpeter and Oscar-nominated composer who wrote the score. Their professional relationship dates back to Lemons' feature film debut, Eve's Bayou. Blanchard also shares a longtime collaboration with Spike Lee, having written the score to films including Malcolm X and Black Klansman, for which Blanchard earned an Oscar nomination. Additional credits include Lee's When the Levees Broke, the documentary about Blanchard's hometown of New Orleans during the devastation from Hurricane Katrina. Blanchard is here in Los Angeles to talk with us today about Harriet. I'm Carolyn Jardina. Welcome to The Hollywood Reporter's Behind the Screen. Terrence, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. You have said that throughout the score of Harriet, you wanted to convey, and I quote, uh, duality of her existence, the strength of her character, and the grace by which she conducted herself. Would you elaborate on that? Well, when you look at her life, this is a woman of strong conviction, but also a woman of strong faith. And she would not allow herself to be treated any other way but with respect. And... I love the line in the film when she says, give me liberty or give me death. You actually, you really believe her when she says that. So I needed the music to show how powerful this diminutive person was, you know, but also show the grace by which she handled herself. You know, she didn't succumb to their level of treating people, you know, unjustly, you know, even in her roughest times. She still relied on her faith to carry her through all of this. So I wanted the music to kind of reflect both things, the power and grace of her personality. How did you do that? Would you elaborate on the way you approached the score and your instrument choices? Well, part of it is in, in the harmonic progression that I used, you know, and the, the way I voiced the harmony. You know, I tried to use a lot of fifths 
and fourth intervals in the harmony and use a lot of lower brass to kind of convey a certain type of strength. But those things move in a pleasant harmonic progression, you know, which kind of conveys the grace. So when I was composing the music, you know, I didn't want to be too forceful with it. In some of the stronger passages, you don't hear a lot of percussion, you know. The percussion is, say, for more of the transitional passages, you know, when they're on the run, when they're, you know, in the woods, running from their attackers. For me, her story is a universal story, and I needed the music to broaden its reach. You know, I didn't want to write a score that was historically correct. You know, that, that I had no interest in that because her story is something that still resonates with people today. You know, and I needed the music to convey that because, you know, we're living in a time, you know, when we have the Me Too movement going on, you know, we just have everything else that's going on in our country right now. Right. That seems to be kind of crazy where we're not respecting people's rights. I needed the music to have a, a, a very broad reach. So this is the reason why I use full orchestra in some areas. The other reason why I did it is because we need to relate to these characters in different ways than we've related to them in the past. A lot of times when we hear that full orchestra, a person like Harriet Tubman is not the person that pops into your mind. And I want to try to change that, you know, because we're all deserving, you know, of respect. And she is definitely deserving of all of our respect and gratitude. Right. What orchestra did you use and where did you record? Uh, we recorded in Nashville, in Tennessee, and uh, we just contracted a bunch of great musicians to come in and play. We also brought in uh, Fabian Almazan, who's the pianist who's been playing in my band for a number of years, to perform because he's just one of those uniquely gifted people that I just had to have on the score. But, man, this film experience, scoring it, was unique in that everybody that performed on it felt blessed to be a part of it. You know, when we told them what the film was about and we would show them scenes, you know, people were just happy to be there. You know, they were just excited to be on the session and say that they had contributed to the film. We, <laughs> we had, a, we had a, such an interesting dinner one night. We were, we're in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm trying to draw any stereotypes, but we were in Nashville, Tennessee. And we went to uh, dinner, and there was a young lady who was the waitress, and she asked us, we started talking, and general conversation, you know, we go, okay, so what are you guys here for? Oh, we're here recording some music. Oh, what, for a movie? Okay, what's the movie? And we say Harriet Tubman. And this young lady, she must have been maybe 21, 22, jumped up and down and started screaming, I've been waiting for somebody to do something on her, on her life. You know, and I'm going, wow. <laughs> <laughs> that was refreshing because to me it speaks to the power of Harriet, that it crosses generations. It is Her story is one of strength and grace. I keep coming back to those two words because, you know, it's what we're really lacking in our country right now, you know, in terms of our leadership, I should say. You know, it's strength and grace. And that's the reason why I feel blessed to be a part of the film because uh, 
It's one of those moments in times. It's one of those projects that don't come along too often. Well, let's listen to some of your music. Okay. We're going to start with the opening title, Harriet's Theme. Would mm -hmm. you introduce it? Sure. You know, the, what's interesting about the opening title, it actually comes from one of the later scenes in the film when she's crossing the water uh, because that moment to me was such a powerful moment. And when I played it for Casey, you know, Casey loved it. And I sent her a little demo of it. And <laughs> she took it and put it in the front of the film as the opening. And I went, oh, I didn't think it would work there, but it works perfectly there. So that's how it became the opening of the film. The next cue we're going to listen to is called On the Run. Mm -hmm. Would you tell us about that cue? Well, the interesting thing about On the Run for me is that initially it sets up a certain type of sonic palette for the rest of the film. You know, that there, there's some rhythmic things that I had to do in uh, that scene that I wanted to be a little unique. And so I brought in some African percussion just to lay of a, a percussive bed underneath things but then also it switches to another segment where she's trying to get her husband to come with her or he wants to come with her and she's going on her own but the thing about it though the scene it's it's a very poignant moment the two of them because in these films we forget that these people are people of compassion and have love and have relationships. And I love this scene because you see the love between these two people in this scene. And it's a painful one for me to watch, to think about being in love with a person like that, but then making the decision to leave them behind. How did you reflect that in the music? I don't want to totally give it all away, but you know, the music has to ride up and down with that emotional roller coaster. I'll just say that. Okay, well, let's listen. <laughs> Next, we'll listen to Harriet Gets Bath. Would you introduce that one? That particular scene for me is probably one of my favorites, you know, because it's uh, a scene between two strong African-American women, you know, just having a conversation, you know, and just talking about her life, you know, getting to know each other. And, you know, you, they tell me you talk to God. Tell me what that's like. It's a very special moment, you know, because 
I don't know how to explain it. I'll try to do my best. But for me, the thing that I love about that scene is that two strong men rarely get in a room and become that vulnerable to each other in a room, right? Without feeling a certain way, or at least we don't show that. We haven't seen that much in the film. But what's beautiful about this scene is that in one way, both characters are very strong women who need to have that moment of being free, being vulnerable, you know? And they both are sharing that with each other, and they're both being the strength and the shoulder to cry on for each other. They're not crying in the scene, but you, right. you understand what I mean. And I love that about that particular scene. I love that Casey put that there, you know, because it's a very poignant moment, but for me personally, a very powerful one. The next cue is Ye of Little Faith. Would you explain that one to us? Well, Ye Have Little Faith is about them crossing the water. It's a scary moment. It's an incredible moment because, you know, a lot of people go to church every Sunday and they talk a good game about having faith, following their convictions. When it comes time to do that, though, (laughs) you know, The reality of that can be different from for a lot of people. What's amazing about that scene is that it expresses how that's how she lived her life, you know? Right. She said, you know, listen, okay, some people don't know how to swim. I get it, but we're going to cross this water. Our lives depend on it. She gets in the middle. I don't want I, I can't give it all away, but it's really an incredible scene because it speaks to the power of her conviction, you know, the strength of her faith and how her conversations with her creator, you know, allowed her to bring these people to safety at a moment when one wrong move could have meant disaster for everybody. How did you reflect that in the score? Well, it's just, there's a moment in it where the music just kind of drops away at one particular moment and she's talking to God and she's saying, lead me through. You know, and then the music picks back up again because the thing that I think of, I grew up in the church. I grew up going to church every Sunday. So one of the things, you know, my grandmother always used to talk about is when you pray to God, you don't pray to God and then hope that things will be better. You know things will be better because if you believe in God and you believe in his grace and mercy and his power, you know that when you go to ask for some things, those things are there. You just have to conduct yourself in a way that exhibits your belief, you know, and your confidence in him. And that's what that scene represents. So when the music stops and she starts to have the conversation with him and she says, lead me through, you know, from the time that I was a kid, you know, once you make that request, all of the energy in your body changes because you know that you'll be taken care of if you're a true believer, right? 
And that's what the music is supposed to reflect. So the music is supposed to have a certain type of strength and confidence moving forward. It can't be iffy. It can't be circumspect. You know what I mean? It has to be very direct and forward moving. So that's what I try to do. I'd like to also ask you to talk about meeting the underground. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> the underground scene, it's an interesting scene because Harriet Tubman is being brought into this room of these other members of the Underground Railroad. And she's the only woman in the room. But at the same time, the thing that I found fascinating is to see this room filled with intellectuals of high character. Something we don't see much of when African Americans are portrayed in these films, especially in this period. And initially, the idea was to play the scene as if there was classical music playing in the background. You know, so that particular cue sounds a little different from everything else in the film because it's a supposed to set the tone for this culture that has existed amongst our people for generations, but not seen very often. What I tried to do was I tried to look at it as more of like a classical piece, maybe like Chopin-esque, if you will. Yeah, it's just a piece of music that kind of sets the tone for what has been happening in our culture for generations in terms of these intellectuals gathering, having these discussions, figuring out what's the best course of action for our people at that time. So when you hear this piece of music, it, it doesn't sound like anything else in the score. It's, it's something very separate because that's what the scene is supposed to be. What do you hope people will take away from this film? I hope people walk away with an idea of how anyone can be the source or the inspiration behind a movement. I hate to use this cliche, but it really fits here. It's not the size of the dog in the fight. When you look at this film, man, it made me think of so many women in my life growing up. You know, my grandmother, my mother, my aunts, and how strong-willed those women were and are, and how much of an effect that has had on me. When I first started touring as a jazz musician in the early 80s, I would be in Japan, I would be in Europe, I'd be all over the place. And I'd call home and my mom would say, here, talk to your grandmother. And uh, my grandmother, didn't matter where I was, she would always say, you know, carry God with you wherever you go. You know, and she says, I'm praying for you all the time. I say, I know, Grandma. And she meant that. 
You know, that's the way she lived her life. And that's what I grew up with, you know, strong-willed women. And when I look at this film, I want people to walk away being energized, you know, because we look at the power that women have had throughout our electoral process recently and in the future. It's one of the demographics that everybody's paying a lot of attention to. You know, women of all colors, you know, all backgrounds. Even beyond that, just the mere fact that this person, who happened to be a woman, saw injustice and wanted to do something about it and couldn't live with it and had such a powerful effect on our country that a 20-something-year-old woman in Nashville, Tennessee is excited about the film. I can't even measure the amount of power that that has on us as human beings. Right. So, I, I, you know, I, when people walk away with the, from the film, I want them to be proud. I want them to be energized. I want them to be motivated to understand that, you know, stop looking externally for things to change. You know, what are you doing to affect change? Because you have the power to do so. You've had a busy year, so I'd like to talk about <laughs> some other things. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. So uh, recently mm -hmm. uh, you composed your second opera, mm -hmm. uh, Fire Shut Up in My Bones. Yes. Which Casey wrote, and it had its world premiere last spring and is going to the Metropolitan Opera. Mm -hmm. um, as I understand it, this is the first opera with an African American composer in the Met's 136 year history. Yeah, not crazy. In a weird way, I'm proud about that. It's a sad thing to me. I was surprised. I was extremely surprised. I had no idea. Uh, and the reason why it's a sad thing to me is because I know there have been composers who have been well-deserving of a chance of having their work produced at the Met. I am not the first composer to come along of color who has had the ability to produce something there. I understand that. And I also am proud of it because I know some of those composers. They taught me. Roger Dickinson in New Orleans, who studied with another great composer named Howard Swanson. A lot of people don't know these names. And there was another composer who lived in New York who I studied with. His name was Hale Smith. Hale was a great composer. And I remember having a very uh, interesting conversation with him about his music because I, you know, I, I was naive. I was young. I was in my early 20s. And I said, well, hey, man, when is the next performance of some of your music? I want to go and hear some of your stuff perform live. And he said, probably February, if at all because Black History Month. That hit me really hard because his music wasn't being performed or recorded, but it didn't stop him from creating. That's the thing about this moment in time for me that makes me reflect on all of this. My composition teacher, Roger Dickerson, who's still around and still my counsel, I call him all the time when I need him. He's still creating, he's still writing, he's still doing his thing. It speaks to the passion that they have for creating music. And I'm totally indebted to those guys, you know, because they're not doing this for acclaim. You know, that's not they're not doing it for anything else. And that's what they passed on to me is to have a passion. Follow your passion. You know, no matter where it leads, follow your passion. So it's it's a huge honor to just have 
fire shut up in my bones at the Met in itself, whether I'm the first or not. It's just a huge honor. But it's a shocking reality to think that I'm the first African-American. Hopefully, in the near future, I will not be the last, because there are other people out there who have the ability to do this. And they're doing it, actually. They're doing it. They're just not being recognized for it. Right. Well, tell us about the opera. Well, the opera itself is about Charles Blow's life, you know, growing up in Gippsland, Louisiana. And my wife had uh, read the book, Fire Shut Up in My Bones, and thought it was a powerful story and told me about it. And I thought it was a powerful story. And I think what really touches people about it is that we have Charles amongst us. To see his level of success that he's reached speaks volumes about where he's come from, you know, having gone through this, being molested as a kid by a family member, you know, repeatedly. It takes place from the beginning of, well, the early days of his life, and it goes through him growing up and going off to college. And it speaks to how he was always a little different kid. He was always a little different from his brothers, you know? He wasn't athletic like his brothers, you know? And people kind of chided him for it. Well, I think one of the things that uh, really warmed my heart about doing this story was talking to Charles after the premiere, because we wouldn't allow him to see anything. And he, he actually called me up one day. He, was, <laughs> he wasn't upset, but, but he was saying, hey man, people keep asking me, you know, about the opera. And I keep telling them, I haven't heard anything. <laughs> and I said, well, hold, you know, trust me, trust me. Just, just hold on, hold on. And when he came to the premiere, you know, I was really nervous about him seeing it for the first time because it's his life on stage, you know. And uh, when we talked afterwards, I just walked up to him. And I said, we cool? And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, we're good, we're good. And he said something to me that really warmed my heart. He said, what happened to him watching the opera, it made him realize that he's not that person anymore. It made him realize that that was another part of his life and that he's grown past that, which is part of the success story. You've enjoyed working with directors, including Casey, um, as well as Spike Lee. Mm -hmm. For you, what makes a successful collaboration? Being able to listen. Being able to listen, put your ego aside. Being able to embrace what's uncomfortable, you know, because you're dealing with another person's perspective on how to tell a story, you know, which may be a little different from yours. I embrace that feeling. It's an uncomfortable feeling at times. It's not something that you enjoy all the time, you know, because you may have a definite uh, idea about how things should go. But when you talk to other people and say, no, well, I think it should be this, and I, I'm feeling this, you go, wow, okay, I have to step back and say, okay, well, let me see where they're coming from. And it, for me, as an artist, man, it's part of the, the growth process. It helps to broaden you know, my experiences. Working with Casey on Harriet, she came to New Orleans, and we just sat in my studio, and we went through the film, and we would sit down and talk about certain scenes, you know, well, she would say, I think it's this. And I said, oh, are you sure? I don't know, sure, yeah. And we would go back and forth. Sometimes she would convince me to change my approach. Sometimes I would get her to see some things that she hadn't seen. But that's part of the process. It's never a thing of, I know what's best for your film. It's never that. 
No, it's let's dig into this and find out what's here. Working with Spike, Spike has a definite vision about how he tells stories, which is different from Casey, right? And sometimes, you know, I remember talking to Spike about, hey, man, there's a lot of important dialogue in the scene. You sure you want to have this amount of music here? And uh, he got tired of me asking that question <laughs> one day. And he said, hey, man, it's been scientifically proven that the brain can focus on more than one thing at one time. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I got it. I got it. But therein lies the growth process for me because I'm bringing my aesthetic to his film, you know? And he's like, no, oh, no, 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 no. Let's, let's go ahead. And, and what it's done is created a unique collaboration between the two of us which is different from the unique collaboration between Casey and myself, which that's what it's supposed to be. That's why being a composer, a film composer, working with different directors, I love. You know, there's some people I'm getting ready to work with in the near future, and I'm looking forward to it because it can only help to make me grow. Jazz is so spontaneous, which isn't typically the case with film scoring. How do you navigate back and forth? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Yeah, because, you know, uh, when I first got in the film business, everybody thought that I would just want to play trumpet solos over every scene. <laughs> you know, I'm like, no, 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 no. Well, being a jazz musician allows me to think quickly on my feet. If things aren't working, you know, I can easily just jump back and say, okay, we'll throw that away. Let's try something else. As a matter of fact, I remember with one of my earlier recordings with the jazz band that I had a few years ago, we were doing, uh, I forgot what tune we were doing. We were doing a, a, one of my tunes, we were recording a take, and the take was going really well. You know, I loved what the guys were playing, and the computer crashed in the middle of the take. And the engineer said, ah, wait, guys, wait, guys. Uh, we need to do that again. And it was so amazing. I was like, oh, my God. And then when we went back to do the next take, the guys went a totally different direction. They just threw that away and said, that was that moment. Well, let's move on to something else. Well, that happens in film. You know, it happens in, when you're working with directors. You know, I can, because first of all, it's a solitary experience. I'm sitting in a room with the film by myself for the longest time. And then all of a sudden, director comes in and I go, hey, let me tell you what I think. Let me show you what I've, what I've come up with. And you've put all your heart and soul into this. And the director goes, eh, maybe not. <laughs> you know, that can be a scary thing. But it also can show you how to quickly broaden your approach. Let's talk about your latest Blue Note jazz album, Live. That came out last year and um, you used it to address a very important topic, gun violence. Yeah, when I first put together the e-collective about four or five years ago, initially what I was trying to do was to put together a band of musicians who was, we were going to play groove-based music and we were going to try to inspire some young kids to play instruments because, you know, at the time we kind of saw that a lot of young kids were not picking up instruments, they were doing other things. And when we started the first tour, this was back when Mike Brown was shot, and then Tamir Rice was shot, then Philando Castile, Eric Gardner. We realized we couldn't do, you know, very happy music. We wanted to do something else, so we picked up the whole notion of dealing with the topic of gun violence. And my daughter, uh, who's at Berkeley College of Music, Sydney, she's the one that came up to, with the title for the first one. She called it Breathless. And when it came time to do the second CD for that particular band, we couldn't abandon the topic. We wanted to figure out how to broaden the conversation because 
you know, in the news media and still to this day, you know, we're covering the tweets, you know, of one individual while a lot of other things are still going on and still happening. As what happened a couple of weeks ago with a young lady sitting in her home being shot while just being at home. So we wanted to go and have some civic engagement in some places where we had tragedies. And for us, it's not just a one-way thing with the gun violence. It's not just police shooting unarmed people of color, but it's also gun violence in general. It's the reason why we went to Dallas, right. you know, where we had the, the, the cops who were involved in that particular incident that was tragic. We also went to Cleveland where Tamir Rice was shot. We went to Minneapolis where Philander was killed. And I think the thing that's the most heartbreaking about all of it is like, you know, we went to the school where Philando worked. And at the time that we were there, the little kids were still asking about him. And it was such a beautiful experience because it was such an ironic thing to think that this man may have lost his life because of somebody else's bias towards people of color at a moment where he worked at a school with young kids, elementary school kids, who came from every walk of life, literally. When I saw those kids, it blew my mind. They were, they were kids who of the Muslim faith. They were kids all different colors. And they were kids who loved this dude. And one of the workers there, he really made it personal when he just made a simple statement. He said, Phil was a nice guy. Just by him saying Phil, it broke my heart. And... We figured we needed to do something to try to keep that dialogue going, you know. So recording in those particular areas of the country allowed us to talk about it when the CD was released. And we're still talking about it. You know, we're doing a show now with a dance troupe. It's called Caravan. And what the entire show is about is we actually have choreographed a story about gun violence. And we've done this to try to maintain the option of talking about this topic, you know, because I've gotten to the point now where I don't turn on the news too much. And that's sad, because I'm a news junkie, you know. But I've gotten to the point where I don't turn it, because it's the same thing every day. It's the same thing every day while other things are not being covered. And uh, it's a sad moment in our history because you can tell it's also about ratings. We, can, we claim it's about news, but I get it. It's about ratings because it's a sensationalized story. It's an absurd story. But people are losing their lives as well. And we need to really speak to what's happening with that because it's getting worse. We actually told people when the album was released Allow the music to absorb your anger and frustration because we don't want people doing things that can harm others or bring harm to themselves. Because a lot of places that we were going when we were recording the CD, that's what was happening. And when we got to Cleveland, this one guy, he came up to me and he solidified the reasons why we should be doing this. He was a fan of my jazz band. And to put it in the context, the electric band was kind of new, so I was getting a lot of, hey, man, we really love the jazz band kind of conversations after shows, you know. So this guy, 
he came up to him and he goes, hey man, I was expecting you to play the music from A Tale of God's Will, which is from Spike's documentary. And I go, uh-oh, this is gonna be one of those conversations. And then he said, because whatever, whatever you were playing, it just sounded so angry. And then he said, but then you told us what the music was about. And then he said, my next thought was, well, if the guy who created A Tale of God's Will, which he can consider to be a beautiful album, was this angry about this topic, he said, it made me think, maybe I should rethink my position on gun control. And that was a very powerful moment for me as an artist because you want people to reflect on other people's humanity because sometimes we can just be in our own zone and we just like don't think about it and we can just overlook it, right? But because of the relationship that I had with this guy through music and him responding to how I was responding to this topic, it just emboldened us to keep going and continue doing what we're doing with this music. Thank you for sharing that story. So you have some more film and music projects coming up, and you'll also be at UCLA. Tell us what's next. Well, I'm touring with the band. I'm looking forward to doing some new music for a recording for Blue Note Records uh, later this year. I'm really excited about my position at UCLA. You know, I have uh, never been the head of a department before, but I'm excited about this because the potential there is incredible. So your new role will be? My new role will be the head of the Global Jazz Department. I'm the first recipient of the Kenny Burrell Chair at UCLA. So it's a five-year commitment, so I'm here for a while. So I'm looking forward to that. I also have a jazz series in Detroit where I curate at the Paradise Theater. It's called Paradise Jazz Series. We just had Bradford Marcellus. We've had, I'm playing later on this year. We have Diane Reeves coming. I've been doing that for about eight years now, and it's been an incredible experience. That audience there in Detroit is very serious, <laughs> very knowledgeable. So I'm excited about that too. And then I'm finishing Spike's movie, uh, The Five Bloods, uh, which is a movie about four Vietnam veterans who go back to find the remains of a fallen brother. It's a typical Spike movie in that it is uniquely powerful and humorous at the same time. I very much enjoyed talking with you. Thank, Thank you. you for coming down and chatting with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.